Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. You know what a master of the universe is, Taplines listener? Tom Wolfe coined the term in Bonfire of the Vanities to describe a hard-charging, well-pedigreed finance doofus that ruled New York City in the heady, bond-trading days of the 1980s. It's a great novel and a great term, but you may be wondering what it has to do with beer. For the answer to that question, we shift our attention from the decade of greed to the more recent past. Midway through the 2010s, New York City's dormant brewing scene was amidst a renaissance, thanks in no small part to the fortuitous changes to New York State's brewery licensing program that I discussed with Brew York's Chris O'Leary in an earlier episode of Taplines. Go back and check that one out in your feed if you're so inclined, listener. Anyway, the point is, when a new craft brewery named Other Half opened its doors in 2014 beneath a highway overpass in central Brooklyn, it wasn't the biggest deal in town. But thanks to its endless barrage of hazy, hard-to-buy India Pale Ales, it would soon become one. And not just to New York City's diehard craft beer enthusiasts, either. Joining Taplines today is longtime beverage alcohol journalist, vine pair writer at large, and author of the hotly anticipated new book, Dusty Booze, Aaron Goldfarb, to discuss Other Half's meteoric rise from humble beginnings to coveted hype brewery last decade. Having found himself a few times in the line that formed outside the brewery on release days, Aaron witnessed firsthand a shift in Other Half's clientele and cachet as New York City's contemporary masters of the universe, finance bros, basically, became enthralled by the drinkability, variety, and most importantly, the scarcity of the brewery's liquid wares. Then, given the business we're in, Aaron wrote about it. The rest is beer history, and this podcast does beer history, so you know we had to have him on to talk about it. It's journalist Aaron Goldfarb, it's Other Half Brewing Company, it's how finance bros discovered hazy IPA, and it's all right here right now on Vine Pairs Taplines. Here at Taplines, we're big fans of the free market, as you know. We love the markets. Market is magic. Uh, Laissez-faire seems pretty fair to us here at HQ. And what we're going to be talking about today is an interesting intersection of the beer market and the financial markets. What? What do those two things have to do with one another? I'm not talking about Anheuser-Busch InBev stock or short-selling Constellation brands or something along those lines. No, I'm talking about something a little bit more raw, a little bit more real. I'm talking about a moment in time, last decade, when a particular New York creature, a type, a guy, only really found in New York City, was all over a particular beer, a type uh, a larger-than-life uh, sort of exemplar of an emerging category. We've got a lot to talk about today, and to, we're going to be talking about with one of my good colleagues and pals who's joining Taplines today. I'm talking, of course, about Aaron Goldfarb. Aaron, welcome to Taplines. Thanks for having me. I uh, I always love your intros. Do you, do you write those, or is it kind of like Eminem rap battling? Just a- We have a strict mom spaghetti policy here at Taplines. Yeah. It is all straight off the dome, which is why a lot of times I just leave myself down dead end tangents that I have to recover from or beg our producer to cut in post-production. But 
that's more about me. Let's talk more about you, Aaron. Uh, thanks for joining the show today. Where are you joining us from? Brooklyn, New York City, about a mile and a half away from the brewery we're going to discuss. Today. The epicenter of our episode today. Uh, you're here to tackle a conversation about, you know, outsize value that markets uh, were placing on a certain beer, which, uh, of course, we're talking about other half, which, ep- listener, you know, because you've clicked into this episode and you've stuck with us so far. Uh, and we're talking about finance bros who who got really, really uh, into this specific brewery in central Brooklyn, it's sort of at the base of a neighborhood called Carroll Gardens, uh, just about a mile where Aaron lives, about a mile where I used to live uh, when I was still living within uh, the borough of Brooklyn. But uh, before we get into that, Aaron, you've been reporting on beer, spirits, a little bit of wine here and there for what? I mean, at this point, you're going on two decades. <laughs> yes. Yeah, And if you're just listening to the audio podcast of this, I don't think I look like I've been reporting on it for two decades, but maybe I do. Yeah, I I started reporting (laughs) on this stuff before, you know, back when New York had like two breweries. Right. Um, And one of them was like Heartland in fucking uh, Times Square. (laughs) Which, you know, no one was a faux brewery with just fake equipment and no one back then had the knowledge to even know what a brewery looked like. So because there was like a copper pipe, people were like, ah, they must be making, you know, (laughs) millions of barrels of beer in this tiny space. Light manufacturing. Very cool. Exposed brick. Totally, man. (laughs) Yeah. So that's how long I've, that's how long I've been in the game. (laughs) Okay. So, but you, you know, so you've been reporting on beverage alcohol for all this time. You dig into the culture of stuff. You've written several books on, uh, on cocktails, on mixology. You've also written what? Two novels at this point? Three? I've written a few. I'd written, I've written a few much to most people's, well, forgetting them, but. Surprise and potential dismay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've gone Uh, through lots of career, lots of careers and I'll probably go through a lot more. But you've been all over the beer space for even longer than I have. Like I started in what, like 2010 or so and you were yeah. already very much in the game. And what we're going to be talking about today is happens about what, like five to seven years later where, um, you know, we scrub forward a little bit through last decade. Let's put it at like 2015, 2016, whatever. Trump just got elected. New York is in a state of upheaval. Yeah. But as that's all happening in like the broader American landscape um, in the beer industry in New York, things are starting to sort of are starting to to gain momentum. Things are starting to crystallize. Like there's a scene, you know, that wasn't there when you started. Uh, you know, more than two breweries at that point in 2015. There's there's a few players in the game. Can you talk us through or listeners through who have never been uh, to New York City or weren't there at that time? what the scene looks like midway through last decade, around 2015 or so? Yeah, well, you know, you kind of need a thumbnail history of brewing in New York, and I won't Do go it. all the way back to German immigrants arriving or, or Dutch immigrants uh, setting <laughs> right. up breweries and kicking, uh, you know, the Iroquois out of... Out of uh, um, <laughs> so, like, you well know... beyond the, the scope of our podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I talk, I talk for four hours, and then I'm finally like, okay, now we're at... <laughs> 1999. <laughs> no, so opens. you know, <laughs> yeah. So I've written, I've written about this before. Uh, right. You know, believe, believe it or not, in both the 80s and 90s, not not just New York City, Manhattan 
had major what we would call microbrew trends back then. You know, I believe the second biggest brewery in in America, uh, craft brewery in America, was in Manhattan, um, Manhattan uh, Brewing. In the 90s, uh, brew pubs got very trendy, so trendy that that was the first time kind of, uh, you know, Patrick Bateman types, you know, would would go right in their suit to, right. uh, you know, hip brew pubs in um, Manhattan, believe it or not. I, I still can't believe that. I, I, I'm not that old that I was around then. But by the time I moved to New York in 2001, it's Brooklyn Brewery, which is legitimately brewing their beer. And Brooklyn Lager is about the only craft beer that has any sort of ubiquity. Um, Heartland Brewing, as we mentioned, and then Chelsea Brewing, um, which is where the Chelsea Piers is now. So for a guy like me who was interested in drinking good beer, um, even in college, you know, I, I, I said, well, I like to get drunk, but not on stuff that tastes this bad. So I was always looking to try better stuff. Um, if you were looking for that in New York City in 2001, your only option was kind of Belgian imports, mm. uh, Chimay, Duval, stuff like that. So that's what I drank. And for a 22-year-old, you know, Chimay and Duvel were like 9%, which was unheard of compared to, you know, Budweiser. Sure. Um, by the time we get to about 2010, there were no beer bars either, really. Throughout the aughts, they start appearing Blind Tiger, Ginger Man, Rattle and Hum. Pony. But people can... T- yeah. yeah, Pony. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 Pony Bar. Exactly. People start saying, or people just repeat the offer, you know, that you can't have a brewery in New York City. It's too expensive. There's yep. no space. And that was just kind of taken as 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 truth. It's literally impossible to make a brewery here. Then Six Point opens in, in Brooklyn in like 2004. That was kind of the first. But it really takes till about 2014 for all these breweries to start opening. I think that year you have Other Half, Finback. I think Threes opens that year. And mm. that's the explosion. They're all in Brooklyn or Long Island City at the time. Uh, single cut. Um, but it proves, you know, their space, you know, they're in what were at the time considered undesirable neighborhoods, Gowanus. Um, other half is in Carroll Gardens, a very desirable neighborhood, but it's at the tail end, right by the highway, a gas station and McDonald's. So that wasn't a place that, you know, circa 2010, people were looking to live. Now, you know, people will live anywhere in New York yeah. um, and luxury high rises are put anywhere. So, you know, th- these breweries really burst on the scene and not not like th- they weren't ballyhooed at the time. I remember the first time I had, I think it was just simply called Other Half IPA at an Upper East Side bar called Bondurant's. And I I kind of sat up, oh, what is this? Because it was it was kind of a er hazy IPA. Um, it was a lot different. Um, mm. You know, the 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 aughts were about making the most bitter IPAs possible. And that's why there was kind of the joke about like. You know, the only people that like IPAs are these brewing hipsters, are these, you know, people masochists, that are faking yeah, like they yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Right, right, how could, yeah. And some of the beers had masochistic names, Tongue Buckler, a thousand IBU, which stood for International <laughs> Bitterness Units. So quote unquote, normal people, normies did not drink IPAs. IPA was the separator between a real beer connoisseur and uh, a normal person, a normal person at the time if they went to the pony bar or something, would ask, they'd say, give me something light. They might right. get an Allagash White or, you know, a Red L or a Brown L. They certainly weren't drinking a Ballast Point Sculpin. That was right. disgusting to them. So other half, 
you know, kind of on the backs of the Vermont brewing scene, Hetty Topper, Hill Farmstead, yeah. Lawson's Finest, yeah. were the one of the first, along with a few other New England area breweries, to kind of spearhead these beers that were made with new breeds of experimental hops like Citra that, you know, had dialed down the bitterness and were instead tropical, fruity, and then brewed in a way where they were soft on the palate. These were these were IPAs that normal people could enjoy because they had a nice, pleasant flavor. And that right. really, you know, opened up the IPA market to everyone and launched everything else. I'm done talking now. That ushers in what <laughs> yeah, the, shut up, Aaron. Uh no, it was excellent context and I think like really sets the scene for the moment that we're going to be zooming in on here on the episode in just a moment, um, this era that we're currently living through in American craft beer is dominated by imperial uh, hazy IPAs, right? This is a style now, double IPAs, of course, as well. Um, you know, the, the Voodoo Ranger success story coming out of New Belgium has sort of crystallized that reality that we're living in, um, you know, from a, from a drinker perspective. And I, personally, they're not to my taste. I don't know, you know, but it, the numbers don't lie. I mean, like the volume right now is in this hazy category that uh, halfway through last decade on the East Coast was just really, to your point, starting to trickle out of uh, Vermont, where a lot of people, you know, consider it starting. You mentioned Hetty Topper from Alchemist, um, which is, I, I was going to ask you about that. Like where, where is Alchemist in this scene midway through last decade in New York? Are people able to get their hands on Alchemist? Are people like still doing the thing where they're like running it down, you know, the New York yeah. throughway and paying someone on Craigslist? Like what's the, what's the availability of some of those like, uh, original, um, exemplars of the style in New York yeah. City at that time. Yeah, so Hetty Topper's first brewed, I believe, in 2004 as a, mm. a brew pub only tap beer. And it has no no notoriety across America. You'd have to be a real beer nerd to have heard about it. Um, a hurricane or a flood sweeps Vermont around 2010 or 2011, I forget which one, wipes out the brew pub. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're kind of an option, I think, if I recall, is to start canning Hetty Topper. And this is about, uh, I think, 11 or 12. And believe it or not, even 10 years ago, canned beer was weird. So they're Still putting unusual. Yep. this hazy, you know, tropical IPA in a can, um, a can which even says drink from the can, mm -hmm. um, which was considered verboten. A lot of people suspect they said that because if you'd poured the beer out, it would have been hazy, which was considered a flaw at the time. Sure. Now, of course, no one cares. Um, or actively seeks so, it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Hetty Topper occasionally had drops at like better retail stores in New York. But for the most part, you had to drive up to um, uh, Vermont, uh, Stowe, I think, and and wait in line. And I, I made my, my poor uh, wife, who was not my wife at the time, uh, do that at least once. And um, You did the pilgrimage. I did the pilgrimage. I mean- now, Hill Farmstead, which I always slightly preferred just because, you know, the Alchemist went all in on Hetty Topper at first. That was the only beer they made, uh -huh. um, whereas Hill Farmstead was making a variety of beers. And at the at that time, uh, Sean Hill, their owner and brewer, their their uh, 
mercurial would that be the term i don't know i think that's um, probably the most charitable term you could use to get yeah, away yeah. with describing sean hill <laughs> right I, you know at the time i don't think he believed in packaging so you nor distribution so you literally had to go to um hill farmstead to drink and i remember the first time i went again this was 2012 or so um, I was at the Alchemist and which is, you know, for the most part, kind of in a big area. It's right by Ben and Jerry's in Vermont. And I said I was going and, and the owner of the Alchemist, John uh, Kimmich, printed me out MapQuest directions because he said, you're not going to find it <laughs> otherwise. Right. Your, your phone is going to quit working. There's going to be roads that don't look like roads. Um, you need, you need these printed out directions or you're going to get stuck in the woods. Um, Man, and it even was a name checking map quest is an insane blast from the past. Remember that? Yeah, Damn. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't remember what this question started with, but well, the question was, when does that stuff start showing up in New York city? Right? Like how much had that filtered into like the, the new, the Manhattan, the Brooklyn craft beer ecosystem at that time? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's surreal to think back. There's a crappy bodega on my corner now that has Hetty Topper and Focal Banger, their other beer, at all times wow. for $5 a can. Wow. If you told me that even five years ago, I would say that's that's impossible. These were, you know, real, like, silver, like, pieces of, you know, ore. Like, to have one in your hand was like, I can't believe this. You might invite several people over and share a, a can, and now I can have it whenever I want, um, right. which which kind of sw- speaks to how the the – the beer trends have gone, but, um, yeah, they'd occasionally make drops at, you know, better, better stores, maybe, a or bars, maybe a sput and dival or a rattle and hum. And, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, it was a thing where it was announced on Facebook or Twitter or whatever people were talking, using in 2014. And, you know, if you, if you weren't at that bar or retail within the hour, it was gone. It's gone. So yeah. yeah, you better live there. Um, yeah. And that was that. I think, I think, um, you know, they moved to a bigger production site and, you know, the pandemic forced them to get more into distribution, which is perhaps why it's at my bodega now. But, you know, it's it's continued to be a beer kind of like Pliny the Elder that that has a, a, a magicness to it that yep. people still, you know, respect and love in a way that some of these other beers came in and went. Um, even if it is a bodega beer now, it's one that people still go, oh, wow, heady topper. And are like pleasantly surprised that it's a bodega beer and not like it, it hasn't lost respect in that. Uh, it's not like uh, absolutely. It hasn't. Be- yeah. 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 It hasn't become the so-called shelf turd and it still tastes great. I still, you know, pick one up, uh, you know, just for the memories. Occasionally, I'm not really into drinking 8% IPAs these days, but, you know, I'll pick one up. Uh, and, and even my wife still has fond memories of it, despite having to stand in a line with me. <laughs> Yeah, you subject her, but she still married you anyway. So congratulations to you, Aaron. Okay, so that's thank you. That's thank we've you. got both the we've got both the scene within New York City and then uh, in the you know sort of northeastern beer market, which is heavily starting to heavily inform or just on the vanguard of what would become an enormous amount of influence uh, because of its um, you know sort of pack leading practitioners of the style that we all know as hazy IPA now right New England IPA a lot of people call yeah. it so other half opens like 2014 uh maybe 2015 yeah. right right early 2015 whatever 14 uh, yeah th- is that what it is yeah thereabouts so two things have sort of happened in the statewide 
thing, uh, you know, context, and then in the national beer context that I just want to flag for listeners, because the ground is shifting in, like, really major ways that I think, I mean, other half, you know, has done a tremendous job of building a business, and I I give them full credit for it, but it also is a very, it's a product of serendipity in the way that so many businesses are, like, you know, it's, it's half luck and half, you know, whatever, like, the two things I want to flag are, are episodes that we've uh, previously recorded here on Tap Lines. In 2010, um, Natalie and Vinny Chalurzo, who are out at Russian River Brewing Company, um, you know, opened the doors on a Saturday to do their release of uh, Pliny the Younger, and that's a triple IPA um, that they had made for a few years, and that release was over attended. It was it was kind of insane. And, and uh, listener, I encourage you to go back and check it out. It's, I think the second episode we've ever done on Tapline. So scroll back in your feed, but what Natalie Chalurzo found or learned from that experience and many other brewers did it as well is there's a latent demand for really hoppy, really coveted, you know, beers that are uh, ranked well on websites such as Beer Advocate at the time, Rate Beer, um, you know, later on it would maybe become untapped, whatever, or private Facebook groups. But in other words, like the internet was starting to drive an outsized demand for a specific type of beer. And there had always been kind of like niche, sort of like obsessive beers. I mean, you mentioned Belgians earlier. There was a following of you know, geeks who would go to like literal auctions and buy bottles of Cantillon or buy, you know, whatever. But this was something new. And this was a shift where you were just seeing an enormous amount of customer attention and, and excitement for, um, specific releases. And and we talk about it now as like line culture, because it's a much more familiar thing within the craft beer space, but that starts to happen four years before other half opens, two years before other half opens, the state of New York passes uh, much more friendly uh, legislation to open up its farm bill um, to more breweries. To uh, The long and the short, it's very wonky. Uh, and we talked about it in an episode of Tap Lines with Chris O'Leary of Brew York, which I encourage you to go check out as well, listener. But the long and the short of it is it expedites the process for brewers to get uh, permits to brew, to, to become licensed to brew uh, beer in the state of New York. And that's in 2012. And have tap rooms as well. And have tap rooms. So like they, they now have opportunities, you know, what we know of as kind of like more of a holistic approach to the business that was restricted from most, you know, basically all New York brewers prior to that without a lengthy licensing process. So this expedites that process. That happens in 2012 in New York. And so leading into other halves, opening, um, we have kind of these forces aligning behind them. The wind is sort of at their backs. I'm not sure that they or any other brewery really knew it at the time. Of course, hindsight is 2020, and that's what we do here on Tap Lines. But the idea is that as they open, like there's a lot of the pieces in the marketplace, in the craft beer culture, in the legislative landscape of the state they're operating in, in the city that they're operating in, that that kind of primes the pump. And so I just wanted to frame that up because what we're going to talk about now is nominally, I suppose, or this is like the most fun part of the episode or the most amusing part. <laughs> a couple of years after Other Half opens, you notice 
I mean, they're, they're having success, right? Do they have success right off the rip, Aaron? Do you remember, like, were, were they received, like, really well right as they opened their doors? Because I remember going down there, they were across, listener, they were across from, like, a McDonald's under the B, the original location, under the BQE, uh, the the, Bron- uh, the uh, Brooklyn Queens Expressway, which is, you know, the overpass is gritty and grubby. It's, like, not a particularly nice area of Brooklyn. It's not unsafe or anything, but it's, like, you know, it's just kind of industrial Brooklyn, were people lining up right off the rip, Aaron? Like, wait, how did it start? Yeah, so I first went there in the summer of 2014. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whereas today you will see breweries or distilleries that from day one, you go, okay, there is some money behind this. This is glossy. Yep. They need to make a lot of money. Yep. You know, the the original other half, the tasting room was as big as like, you know, my my daughter's bedroom. It's tiny, 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 yeah, tiny. Yeah. You could maybe fit. I don't know if, if twenty people were in there, it would be uncomfortable. Right, right. You know, and, and people in the know, perhaps because this was one of the first places you could drink at the source in New York City at the time. I, I'm not going to say they flooded it. You know, I would usually go when they opened. I think at 5 p.m. on a on a, a weekday or a, a, you know, I can't remember what time they opened on Saturday, maybe noon. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't that busy, but people were starting to go, oh, this is good, interesting beer. It's a pretty hip place to drink, you know, uh, urban and, you know, as you said, in kind of a gritty area. It wasn't going to get foot traffic of people that didn't know about it because it right, was a street right. where – you know, unless you were buying like whatever was being produced in the warehouses around there. <laughs> or like bulk gravel, you know. Or right, like right. That. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's by, you know, it's by, you know, Brooklyn's uh, uh, Lowe's, you yep, know, believe yep. it or not, there's a Lowe's in, in Brooklyn. Um, so, you know, it was, it was kind of busy. It was a not quite a secret, but just a, you know, cool little place to go to. Um, I looked up some dates just to get the timeline right. And because and, my memory was a little off on this. So by the winter of 2014, they had their first canned release, believe it or not. I did not really? remember it was that early. Yeah. I would not have guessed that either. There was another yeah. trend that was enabling this to happen. Um, and not thanks to Governor Cuomo, which which you did not name check, even though we should name check. Yeah. It. <laughs> Again, uh, describing him as mercurial would be about as charitable as you could go. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You know, it takes a, it takes a lot of mercurial people to to <laughs> launch an industry. Yeah, right. But um, <laughs> yeah. So these things called mobile canning systems, whereas yeah, yeah. a tiny brewery like other half at the time did not need a massive canning system, which if you've ever been to a brewery, you know, takes up the bulk of the floor space. These trailers could drive over once a week, once a month, twice a week. The breweries could can straight from the tank into cans and sell them 12 hours later, literally the freshest beer, you know, anyone had ever tasted, which, which was good for these new England IPAs. Um, so they start releasing their first cans. in I think November of 2014, I go to that release. I remember it was a freezing day. Uh, I show up maybe a half hour before whenever they're releasing it. And by the time they open their doors, there's like 20 people there. So that yeah. was the first release. And I was there. Yeah. I remember they released a beer called Hop Showers, which had a, a cool label, but actually wasn't one of their better beers. And I think they discontinued it. Then by 2015 is when I really remember shit going down, if I can yeah. say that. They yeah, do of course you a, They do a collaboration beer with Trillium, which was kind of the Boston version of right. Other Half. 
had right. opened around the same time, had opened in an industrial area called Fort Point, had a tiny room, at, a tiny tap room at the time. They do a collab. So this is the first one I remember where people coming in from New Jersey, Long Island, Philadelphia, that day I end up standing in a four hour line to <laughs> get the beer and listener, that is the last time I ever did that. Um, so that... That was the end of my line days. My wife came over and brought me a sandwich from Court Street Grocers. She still stayed married to me. And that was the last time I ever waited a line. And <laughs> that was that was really when Other Half took off, line culture took off. And since this was New York City, some of these beer fans were writers like me. Josh Bernstein wrote a story about the lines for the New York Times. You know, people are right that get mad that things that happen in New York get more press than they probably should. If, you know, if this same thing was happening in, you know, wherever, Stowe, Vermont, it wouldn't have got as much I mean, press, it, but it was happening. It was in, happening was, in, yeah. in Russia, Russian River. Like, I mean, that was happening for five years, right? But, like, it had never happened to an editor. You know, and that's the joke, listeners, that news is what happens to editors or news is what happens to writers, right? Like, there's there's a, a bias to it. Of course, we only have so many hours in the day. You only have so much attention. If you're involved in something, you're like, huh, this is interesting. And you happen to be a journalist, like, well, you know how it's going to wind its way into the media. It's because you're going to write a story about it, right? So, like, so yeah. that's, that's interesting to say, though, right? Because, like, there is, I mean, of course, media and social media both play a role in sort of you know, blowing up other half and, and turning it into the behemoth that it would, it would soon become. But you were, you were there for, what was that? That was uh, 2015, you said? You yeah. And I mean, yeah. I was mostly there as a beer fan, not right. a reporter. And then you were like, oh um, shit, this is a story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, people see stories that this place is impossible to get into and they don't go, oh, well, I'll go to another place. They go, okay, now I really got to get into this place. Yeah. I mean, that's and like a classic New York mentality, right? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And and that's, yeah. that's what happened. Um, and from that other half trillium release on, you know, for probably the, all the way up to the pandemic, it became a zoo, you know, it's, it's just the a whole other forums had a tracker, yeah. you know, I, I'd sometimes wake up on a Saturday morning. As I said, I quit, I quit going to these releases um, but I continued to be amused by them. And, you know, you wake up, wake up at 7 a.m. on a Saturday, go on the Beer Advocate forums. There's already posts. Oh, line's halfway down center. Okay. Line's wrapped around to uh, Smith Street. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it became a party scene, you know, where people would come in, you know, bridge and tunnel people, and they just start pounding rare beer. <laughs> in this industrial neighborhood at 7 a.m. On the street, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and if you'd go back to Other Half by the time the release was over, say at 4 in the afternoon, the street was just filled with, like, baller bottles of beer because, you know, these these 28-year-old beer bros were not cleaning up. They were making a mess. You know, Other Half was printing money, but I think these releases were a bit of a thorn in their side. Crowd control was, like, a real thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, weren't, there, there aren't a lot of people that live out there, but there are people that live out there. And there's a very, very funny New York Post article about, well, you're not going to think it's funny when I say what it is. Uh, one homeowner came out with a gun and started threatening the line Jesus one of these uh, Saturdays. And then kind of to, to shove it in the face of these beer bros, started drinking a White Claw in front of them. <laughs> I, I I encourage you to look up the article. I, uh, um, listener, go check that out on your own time because we got bigger fish to fry here. Aaron, okay. I want to ask you when you're 
when you're in those lines, those early lines, the the one in you know November 2014, and then the one in in uh, 2015 that was your last one. What's the what's the makeup? You describe beer bros. You describe some bridge and tunnel people. What is the uh, socioeconomic mix if you had to handicap it? I mean, obviously, you didn't go around asking people their household income, but you know yeah. there are there are obvious signifiers of who has money and how much, especially in New York, where people you know are are sort of there's a rigid uh, social caste that's like pretty identifiable just by scanning the crowd. What uh, what was the vibe? Who was there? Like who were who was kind of like the predominant archetype that you were seeing in those lines early on. Yeah, you know, 99% men, almost no women that have come by themselves. <laughs> some some poor girlfriends and wives that have come along and if they're lucky brought a court street grocer sandwich for you to to <laughs> to <laughs> Um, you know, I I think this was a very middle to, you know, lo- lower class only in the sense that these were young 20-somethings mm-hmm. um, without probably real jobs, maybe service industry jobs or, you know, this this was not M- the economic jobs, elite yeah. at the time. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, cer- I certainly wasn't either. Um, and you got to remember, once these cans, what, you know, that Trillium other half release, you could perhaps buy a case for, you know, I can't remember, $100 and then immediately traded across the country for something else you wanted, you right. know, or, or, or sell it on sites like my beer seller. Um, so anyone doing that, you know, turning a hundred dollar case into a $200, $200 cash is not, you know, the, the, the wall street elite, you know, people would come with, um, dollies and buy as many cases they could and, and wheel them to the car to trade, sell, flip, do it, whatever they can. There was literally no way people could drink the amount of beer they were buying. Right, right. And these are beers that don't have a tremendous shelf life. I mean, like, you know, hazy right, exactly. IPAs, well, they're, they, they're best drank fresh. Like, this is not a stout we're talking about where you could lay it down or whatever. Um, when does yeah. the the creature that I mentioned right at the beginning of this episode, a specific type of, of New York guy, shows up in these lines or starts to get a thirst, an appetite, a taste for other half? When... I'm talking about finance bros and, and listener for those who aren't familiar with finance bros as a concept, uh, because you, you know, are lucky enough to never have encountered one. Uh, this is, you know, it's a type of guy who lives in a a first tier city. A lot of them live in New York. Uh, they work at the big banks or the big hedge funds. Um, they walk around, you know, in, in the late, uh, in the early fall, they walk around with, uh, uh, Patagonia fleeces that are embroidered with their firm's logo on them. They have a specific duffel bag. There's, there's all these fucking markers of like the finance bro. They have a, you know, a $75 haircut, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When does the finance bro in your estimation, because you reported on this and and the, the story in particular that sort of anchors this episode is one that you filed for, uh, punch in 2017, you know, you report out this 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 phenomenon that Wall Street jabronis who are not, <laughs> you know, who are, are are diametrically opposed aesthetically at least to these sort of bearded quote unquote hipsters that took to craft beer at the beginning of the decade. Um, Wall Street Wall Street guys 
have started to be interested in other half and real fucking interested in it. When, in your estimation, having sort of lived through this scene and also reported it out, when does that start happening? Yeah. Um, is $75 too much for a haircut? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't, well, God knows what they're paying for haircuts these days. It's more, I mean, I'm bald, yeah. so it's more than I will ever pay for a haircut ever again in my life. But <laughs> now, So, you know, as you know, Carol Gardens is not a finance bro neighborhood per se. Not um, at the, and especially not at that point, right? It's, it's since gentrified yeah. even more. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. I mean, these, these 20-something finance bros would have been living perhaps in, in downtown or- Murray Hill. Up, Upper East and West yeah, Side, yeah, Murray Hill, yeah. exactly. Maybe Williamsburg or Long Island City, then maybe in a luxury high-rise. So it wasn't a place in their backyard, um, you know, but I really think it was these stories about how you literally can't get this beer that's in your own city unless you stand in line with all the other dorks, right? you know- Drove it. I mean, it's how anything happened, you know, and, and nothing makes a rich person angrier than saying you can't have this thing. You know, <laughs> these poor people with money are standing in line for four hours while you're, you know, doing your, your, you know, spreadsheets. <laughs> right. Exactly. Derivatives and, you know, other words. I don't know what they mean. And, and you, you can't have it. And they say, well, that's ridiculous. I can, I can pay as much as I want for it. And in some cases that works. But with like, you know, certain resources of liquids that only so much is made of, sometimes money can't can't help. But, um, you know, I think it starts happening around 2016 when these mm -hmm. articles start appearing. And that was also when these services like uh, I think it was called like uh, the line guys or something. Same old line you, guys you know, or you whatever. Could, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could you could. Well, the the. The late aughts and early 2010s in New York just were tons of like, not just beer lines, you know, Cronut lines, Magnolia Bakery lines, Hamilton, you know, ticket line. Yeah, exactly. There were, it, it was a real thing, like something's not important unless there was a line. And so kind of a cottage industry of people who'd say, well, I have nothing better to do than stand in a line if you, you pay me 50 bucks an hour, a hundred bucks an hour. And, you know, for a finance bro, you know, buying four cases, a hundred dollars each, and then fifty dollars an hour for three to four hours. That that wasn't much of a, a tax on them. So I think that started happening maybe around 2016. Um, I should also say it had long been rumored that other half had some serious finance bro funding, mm. um, which anecdotally I saw. I, I never knew for sure. I once went to their third anniversary party, I guess, in 2017. Um, not invited. I was a plus one, and I was the only writer there. And it, it, it was, it, I think it was the first time everyone in other half didn't have a beard. These were Manhattan people. These were, these were finance people. And yeah. I presume these were the people that had, you know, given 50,000 bucks for 1% or whatever. I don't know for sure. I didn't They were important enough it. to get invites and you didn't get an invite as a beer journalist who lived in the in the borough and also Yeah, no reported no, on the no scene. beer journalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no beer no beer journalists were there cuz you know, to a weird extent other have got a ton of press while never really caring about the press. They were never rude to the press, but they just they didn't care about the press in the way other local breweries would invite you in. Hey, come try our new thing. Hey, come right. to our anniversary party. They just didn't care. Um, 
So, you know, the the New England IPA was also very easy for a, a neophyte drinker like yep. a finance bro to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as I mentioned in that article, I think, you know, all the kind of baller bottles in every liquid category are are not bad. They just have overwhelming flavors. You know, Macallan is really robust and sherried. You know, Pappy is just, you know, straight caramel and barrel. Screaming Eagle, which I've never tried, is apparently just a very, very fruity red wine. Um, and these IPAs were just, you know, straight boozy orange juice. So it didn't really take a connoisseur's palate to to enjoy these. They were crushable despite the ABV. They had cool labels. You know, if this is what you were drinking out, you know, when you went to the Hamptons or the beach, it was a, a cool cachet thing to drink before you moved on to, you know, Macallan or, you know, Opus One in the evening. Right, right. And it starts conversations and you're sort of being transgressive within, you know, sort of your comfort zone. It's like, oh, he's not drinking Patron, he's drinking other hat, like, oh, can of beer. What's going on there? Yeah, right. Like, there's, dude, you mentioned two things that I want to touch on because I think the parallel is really interesting. One is that other half, maybe more so than any other brewery in New York City, becomes sort of the obsession of a minor obsession of like the a certain type of guy in the finance community, which is massive in New York City. Um, in no small part because of its scarcity. I mean, you make the point that the hazy IPA is much more palatable for the neophyte. And I, I buy that. I, I totally believe that that helps it, you know, gain staying power amongst finance bros. But the reality, as you pointed out, quite rightly, I think, is that they want it because other people can't get it. I mean, that's a we know that that's just an enormously powerful driver for, uh, you know, a certain type of consumer. Um we talk about we talked about the markets earlier, man. Like people, you know, if if some if the market can't get something, and you have more money than everyone else, like that's that's enough of a reason for some rich consumers to just want it, right? And so that's like a catnip for you know sort of rich people. And then you made the point about the media, and you know, other half never really seeks out media, right? Like they're not to your point, like they're not totally standoffish, like they'll answer emails. They've answered my emails before, whatever, but it's not the sort of thing where you get, you know, two pitches a month about their new seasonal releases or, you know, Hey, come down to the tap room. We just put in fucking big buck hunter or whatever. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and no one, no one sent me releases about big buck hunter. I, I don't need those, but, uh, you know, I think that's kind of a catnip to, uh, to journalists to some, you know, in some degree, right. Is if like, man, they don't, they don't care. Like that's what, you know, it's like, there's, there's an attitude there, whether it's deliberate or it's sort of assumed that it makes them sort of seem more quote unquote authentic that makes them, oh, they, they're not interested in burnishing their image. They're just interested in making the beer. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, I'll, I'll leave that to uh, listeners to conclude on their own, but there's, there's sort of like this, this idea of scarcity, both, in the like media perspective and then in the market perspective that drives this legend forward, which I think is at least worth marking. And, and also, I, you know, I think like that's, I think you're right on. I think that the, the scarcity and, and sort of the idea of, of getting something, whether it's a story or it's a can of other half that other people can't get or won't, you know, won't do the work to get is attractive, right? No, it always amused me that, you know, you write a positive story on other half, they wouldn't share it on their social media. 
you write a story like my story about how Wall Street bros love it. They don't go, hey, this guy's full of crap. They just act like you didn't exist. And it always amused me. I have no idea if other half ever even read that Wall Street story. (laughs) You know, with other stuff, you get like brewers or distillers and the rumor mill like, oh, you know, uh, you know, so-and-so is real pissed at that story you wrote. Right. You know, maybe they're they're couth enough not to uh, say it publicly, but y- you hear that. I never heard anything from other half when I wrote about them, positive or negative. I don't yeah. even I still don't even know if they know who I was. And the fact that I went to their third anniversary party as a journalist and they no no one said, Hey, why are you here? or hey, good to see you, Aaron, or anything tells me they probably don't know who I was and never right. did. Right, right. <laughs> I want to, I want to, which is great. Yeah, it's perfect. I mean, that's fine for you, right? Like that's a better way to go. Just like be under the radar and and do your job. And and that's, I mean, listener, this is pretty inside baseball, but like, uh, and I can't speak for all journalists, but like, I don't particularly want to hear from the people I write about, except when I need to talk about them, you know, talk to them or talk about them. Like I'm, if they have tips for me, I want to hear about them, but like, this is a colleague at best, an arm's length colleague relationship. We work in similar professional lanes, and I, you know, that's that's the extent of the relationship that I need out of any brewery or any distillery or whatever. And it sounds like you feel likewise. So it's not like we're saying that other half is like wrong to uh, to behave that way, no. but it is unusual in especially at that point when breweries were open up one after the other and they they had you know uh, an enormous amount of momentum that you know they had PR uh, uh, firms placing stories for them constantly hammering our inboxes desperate for for press and um, other half wasn't doing that. Um, I want to quote from you got this great quote in the in the punch story, which listeners, I recommend you go uh, read it from 2017. Like I said, it was published on punch and it's from a uh, uh, an advisor to Ernst and Young, uh, who was also it sounds like a beer writer at Pace at the time. So he kind of straddles, you know, both worlds. Right. He he knows enough about beer, but he's also kind of has some exposure to the finance, uh, to the the archetypical finance. Bro. Yeah, he was an unusual. Um... Yeah, no, totally. Like there are there weren't that many of them. This is what the quote is going to illustrate here is like, all right. So the quote is uh, one dude in my office doesn't know anything about beer, but is obsessed with Northeast IPAs. Like if I mentioned Kentucky brunch brand stout, he would say, oh, what's that? But he would be able to tell you about every single other half beer, close quote. And uh, Kentucky Brunch Brand Stout is toppling Goliath. It was considered then and, and still to some extent now as like one of the most coveted, you know, the most coveted beers. And it's a great quote because I think it gets at like what you were talking about. It's like there's this this fixation, like this tunnel vision amongst this really influential consumer who has a ton of money to throw around and I mean, for lack of a better way of or more delicate way of phrasing it, no fucking taste, right? Like, what was the reception to this consumer, this powerful cohort of, you know, uh, uh, well-funded or deep-pocketed consumers who latch on to other half but don't necessarily even know what the fuck they're drinking because they only want other half because it's hard to get and it tastes like boozy orange juice, like... How was what was the reception in the in the New York beer scene at that time? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of the same today with with Pappy. I mean, I I had a guy reach out to me two mm. days ago, and he said I, I need to buy a bottle of whiskey as a gift, and my budget is fifteen hundred dollars, which is Good absurd. God, and I I said, you know, I, I really don't think 
you know, after about three hundred dollars, you're you're not getting much more. I'll, I'll recommend some things at that level, but you know, I'd rather a five three hundred dollar. But whatever, they don't care. They want you to tell them something that um, the reception at the time was kind of like amused, like you know, a mile away is threes brewing which makes like 20 different styles, right. many of them world-class, and it's a more comfortable place to drink. It actually has food. Right. Uh, the reception was there's this brewery, Finback, who makes every bit as good of IPAs and has never had a line ever. Admittedly, they were in the deep uh, areas of Queens, so it was a little harder to get there, but yeah. now they're, they're in Brooklyn. Um, it, it was just kind of amusement, and I think a lot of hardcore beer people – started moving away from other half just because it became a pain in the ass to drink there. They eventually got a larger tap room uh, circa maybe 2018, I think. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was it was more comfortable to drink at these other breweries. And eventually you started to realize every single New England IPA tastes the same. <laughs> so, you know, you don't have to go to other half every single week to get their new release because it's going to taste like the one last week. Right. And I'm not even saying it tastes bad. If you like that flavor profile, it's good to you. But, you know, the joke kind of became like, are they brewing the same exact thing and just putting a different cool label on it? Right. I think, you know, one of these years, 18 or 19, they brewed like 400 different beers. Yeah. You know, I, 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 uh, I, I cataloged how many different beers appeared on Beer Advocate that year. It was like 400 different beers, like several, you know, and there's not that many hops combinations. Um, so eventually people just started the the real serious beer drinkers who cared about drinking the beer, not flipping it or selling it. Um, and weren't buying it just because it was scarce, like the finance bros were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, exactly. Where does – so my perception, and I'm curious to hear your, your take on this. So obviously – uh, the pandemic hits, upends everything. Other half also expands, by the way. It is no longer just that small tap room uh, in central Brooklyn. As Aaron mentioned, they put in a bigger tap room in, in Brooklyn, but they also move on uh, and open, uh, what, Rock Center. They have one in New York, and then they have a location in D.C. They just opened a location in Chicago, I want to say. So they're, Philly, Buffalo. Fi- thank you. Yeah, yeah. So th- Williamsburg. So the- <laughs> So the, the footprint for this brewery also expands, and I, I think, like, and this is no, I don't think this is a critique so much as just the way things go. As it becomes more available, it becomes less of a coveted, you know, sort of aspirational Veblen good yeah. that shows off your status, right? Like, and so, in finance bros, I think, move on. My perception is they've moved on. My, my question for you is, is that your perception as well that finance bros have moved on? And if it is, where have they moved to within the beverage alcohol sort of landscape? I mean, what is you also write about spirits? You write about wine. Like, where are you seeing the heat from the customer that you know maybe doesn't know what they're buying but has a lot of money to buy it? Where is that money going in beverage alcohol these days yeah. as opposed to back in like 2015, 2016, 2017? Well, first of all, I only go on podcasts that, that talk about Veblen goods. That's right. Uh, Burka bags and, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, we talked about Hetty Topper and Pliny, which are the only two beers that have really been able to overcome, you know, widening availability for mm-hmm. whatever reason. Mm-hmm. They just have a magicness to them. And I think other half was kind of hurt by the fact that they never had one singular beer that people sought out. They mm. made so many beers, 
you know, double cheddar, broccoli. What I can't even remember the names of most of these beers. You and know, the thing is, it doesn't re- really matter. And that was the whole point. It's like there's going to be a new one every week. It's not even worth committing this to memory. <laughs> r- right, right. You know, a- another brewery of this era, Treehouse, yep. which to a certain extent has been even more successful, has perhaps done a better job at, at branding single beers like Julius and whatnot. And I, I think that's why they're a little more coveted these days than, than other half. That's why they bought um, a fucking golf course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and are moving into New York state now, which is very intriguing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, once you're in this many places and from what I understand, you know, which is funny in this global era, you know, when they, when they open in, in Buffalo, all the, all the locals, Oh boy, we got ourselves that famous brewery from New York. And, you know, it, it, they seem to do well, you know, let's check back in five years. Sure. I, I always feel, I always feel disrespected when something from another city or state, you know, comes in and I'm supposed to be excited that New York finally has a, <laughs> you know, Canes or a shaken state, you know, I'm like, this is a real city. We got our own local stuff. You got your local stuff. You don't, you know, Chicago's a better brewing city than New York City. They don't need another half, I don't think. Um, I don't know if there's excitement there for it. I haven't been paying attention. But, um, yeah, uh, it, you know, it, it inherently is not going to be as coveted or, or popular. Yeah. Um, as to where the finance bros have moved, you know, I, I think like me and a lot of people, they have also grown older and, and crushing, you know, a four pack of 10% double IPAs every Saturday <laughs> gets very hard, you know, we're, we're, we're now, you know, other halves approaching their 10 years. So if you started going there when you were 25, you're 35, you started going there when you were 35, like me, now you're getting into your mid forties and they've probably moved on to families and children and, and fine wine, McAllen, Pappy. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, they've quit, they've quit drinking altogether for various reasons. <laughs> Where, uh, in terms of like, I mean, because obviously you write a ton about the spirits business, you've written about what people call whiskey mania or bourbon mania, the distortion that's happening currently in the brown liquor segment, um, in the whiskey segment in this country. Um, what are, I'm not asking for an equivalent of like another half, you know, IPA in the, in the spirit space, but more like what's the kind of like emperor has no clothes bourbon for rich people right now. Huh. Yeah. And I would say, you know, the emperor had clothes with other half. Um, fair, but, fair, uh, fair, fair. um, I, I would say to a certain extent, will it perhaps, mm. you know, will it back in, you know, the aughts and 2010s were putting out, you know, teenage rise, 23 year old bourbons that only those people in the know knew about. You know, they, they've kind of exhausted their resources of old barrels, and now it's newer stuff. That's not bad by any means. It's just wildly overpriced, wildly coveted, and a ton younger than the stuff that really um, put, them, on the put them on the map. Yeah. So that's that's one. Um, and Will It Likewise has always been a place that just doesn't even pay attention to journalists. Don't answer emails. Don't seem happy if you write about them. Don't seem mad if you don't. Right, right. But they have, uh, you know, their their fanboys do it more for you and and for them and and 
get mad at me if I write something bad about them and will, you know, probably send me death threats if they've gotten this far into the episode and I, I just shit on their beloved will. By the yeah. way, Taplines listener, that's very normal behavior and we do encourage it on this podcast. Definitely harass Aaron via email. Um, we'll give you his email right at the beginning of the episode so you have that handy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he definitely loves to hear from you and all of your opinions about hazy IPAs and, uh, and rare bourbons. Uh, so hit him up. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Closing, closing thoughts here, Aaron. Thank you for, for taking the time and spending, uh, uh, you know, um, the better part of an hour here talking about this sort of, I, I think it's fair to say there's, if not a pivotal moment, sort of like a, a very of its era sort of thing yeah. where other half like first gets like the Sauron gaze of wall street bros, you know, sort of trained on it. And, and all of a sudden they're paying, guys to wait in line for them they're they're drinking this stuff as a as a pregame out in you know the hamptons or wherever finance bros go to vacation <laughs> that i don't even know about you know um right what like you mentioned that you think the emperor had clothes and i think that's i would agree with that i've had other half beers they're good but you know we've also talked about how they've expanded they've become you know sort of like less of like the it you know the it beer amongst a certain moneyed set to some extent, that's just the pace of the market, right? Like people want new, people want interesting, whatever. What I think is maybe worth, or I want to, like wanted to close on is like, other half always was new and interesting by virtue of the fact that they were always rolling out like a new beer yeah. every week. Uh, and, you know, the joke that you mentioned is is one that has gone around the craft beer, you know, ecosystem for basically since they opened, right? Like, oh, it's Citra and Mosaic and Galaxy. Now it's Galaxy, Citra and Mosaic. And it's, you, yeah. you got to pay $18 for both four packs because it might be different, right? But like they, they, they mastered, it strikes me, like, especially in the New York market, this like art of just like breakneck cadence of like hype beers that were coming out again and again and again and again. And yet it's still not enough to maintain, you know, sort of that, that pinnacle of demand or of, you know, like, yeah, even though they're rolling new shit out every week, like eventually people just move on to the next thing. You've covered the space, you covered other parts of beverage alcohol, you've seen this cycle play out many times. What do you like learn from that? Having lived through this one, uh, what's the significance of the fleeting nature of demand for other half? When we look at it at, at the business and we, we look at the way consumers sort of like shape perception and then all of a sudden move on. Give me your take on that. Yeah. This podcast has gotten very Milton Friedman. That's ask. right. That's right. We are solving the problems uh, of overregulation. Uh, we will be uh, seizing the means of production and handing them over to uh, private industrialists after we yeah. wrap today. Milton Friedman's favorite podcast. Blur, <laughs> put that as a put that as a blurb on your um on your uh, Spotify page. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think whether on purpose or accidentally, other half did a lot of things that did show how you know, stuff works in this social media area. You need to post something new and interesting every single day, mm. you know, to, to excite people and get the fire emojis. So they did that. They did that very well. Um, but I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, at a, at a, at a certain point, people, you know, have nothing to latch on to. Um, Treehouse, as I also mentioned, was also releasing a ton of different stuff, but it seems in the last two or three years, they've said like, here are our 10 to 15 core beers, you know, Julius 
green, hazy, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We're going to brew other stuff, but these are the ones that have really resonated with people and captured their imagination. People love Julius. You know, let's just keep brewing it. Maybe it's not going to be rare or hard for people to get, but it's a touchstone, so let's keep doing that. Other Half doesn't really have those those beers, and I think to a certain extent it's hurt them. Having said that, they have as many facilities as Treehouse, so they seem to both be doing well. Right, I, I don't know right. what strategy is going to you know, prevail. Um, I guess we'll, we'll see in five years. I don't know. And meanwhile, the finance bros will be chasing – something new and uh, previously very available that we don't even know about yet. Uh, what do you think will be the next? A rum? They going to rum? They going to THC? What are they going for, Aaron? I, I could see I could see a sort of designer gummy that costs a ton of money becoming hot. That's a good um, call. <laughs> yeah. I like that idea. Hey, cool. uh, let's, cut this out. let's cut this out of the podcast and get some investors. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron Goldfarb, thank you for joining us on Tap Lines. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, man. You're welcome back anytime. That was fun. Tap Lines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.